0: Micah chapter 6 verses 1 to eight. As I said last week, in these few weeks leading up to Easter, I wanted to just have a, a quick look at uh, some of the minor prophets, and we won't get a chance to look at all of them, of course, but just try and, and, and gather what is it what was it that they were on about? What was their main message? Last week we had a look at at Amos and the subject of privilege and responsibility. God chose us just like he chose Abraham, the people of Israel. Out of all the families of the earth he chose them. This morning we look at the contemporary of his day at one of the contemporaries of his day, and that was Micah. Unlike Amos, Micah was a prophet to the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. His name, Micah, means who is like God, who is like Jehovah. His ministry was around 700 years before Jesus. And it also... Overlapped his ministry overlapped that of the prophet Isaiah. But in their ministries we can see some differences. Isaiah was born and he ministered sorry, in, a, in a privileged setting. The palace, the temple to the upper classes. And being from Jerusalem itself, he was familiar with the the national and international affairs of the day. We would say that in today's term in Australia, he lived in Canberra, in the the press gallery and all of that. He was a friend and counsellor of kings and he addressed his messages to rulers, That just gives you an overall idea of who Isaiah was. Micah was a different kind of preacher. Like Amos, he was a simple farmer who grew up far from the confusion and the traffic and the noise of the city. He wasn't moving in political circles like Isaiah. His sermons dealt mainly with social morality, religious duty. He wasn't too concerned with international affairs. Both prophets certainly paint a picture of the sins, of the many sins of the land. But Micah, if you look at him like a painter, he would use rather than different shades, he would use very glaring colours, striking colours in greater detail. As different as both Isaiah and Micah were, they were one in the aim and the substance of their preaching. They both appealed for justice and morality and preached tirelessly about the inevitable consequences of sin and where it would lead. Often these prophets use courtroom drama in their preaching. Isaiah used a courtroom drama in the first chapter of his book and Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 says this, Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Of course, we know quite a bit about the courtroom dramas that go around through television. Hopefully you've never had to appear in court but that is, it's not a very distinct possibility nowadays of course. Uh, Many movies and TV shows are based around the legal system and the court setting and, and getting justice out of a situation. People are fascinated by justice. Speaking of which, let me lighten the mood a little bit and share a joke. Mrs Franklin had been called to jury duty. She declined to serve because she said she didn't believe in capital punishment. And the judge tried to persuade her to stay and said, Madam, he said, this is not a murder case. It is merely a case in which a wife was, is, is suing her husband because she gave him $4,000 to, uh, to buy her uh, a new fur coat and he lost it all on the racetrack instead. I'll serve, said Mrs. Franklin, and I could be wrong about capital punishment. Look at some of the courtroom terms that are used in our scripture reading from Micah chapter 6 verses 1 to 8. The words plead, accusation, a case, a charge. And and Micah structured his message according to a familiar covenant lawsuit pattern. You know, we, we looked at covenants back in, in Genesis, and a covenant is an agreement between two parties to live in harmony with one another. And there were also the consequences in case that covenant was broken or one of the parties did not live up to the terms of the agreement. And here one partner is to confront the other essentially for breach of contract. So let's go into a little bit deeper into our passage First of all, the summons, verses 1 to 2 of Micah chapter 6. The summons, if you've ever received this, you know what I'm talking about, but hopefully it never happened. But a summons is a a court uh, order requiring someone to appear in court. It's usually issued by a judge. And God the judge summons the guilty party to court and asks them, to plead their case. Micah acts as counsel for God. He speaks on behalf of the Lord and says, verses 1 and 2, listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. Who are the witnesses here? Well, it's this list of inanimate witnesses. He's using mountains, hills, everlasting foundations of the earth to represent the created order. The whole world is brought up as as witnesses. And the accused, or the defendant, is Israel. Now God gave his reason for calling the defendants and witnesses. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. What was the main charge? Well, they promised to obey him, to live according to the commandments, to live according to the statutes of the covenant as God's chosen people, as God's family who had been chosen from amongst all the families of the earth, as we saw last week. They promised to obey him, but they disobeyed. They broke the covenant. The second part is the evidence that is presented in verses 3 to 5. The prophet Micah summarised the good things. God kept his side of the bargain and the good things he did for Israel throughout their history. My people, his God is asking, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. Answer me. Upon those words, how have I burdened you? We'll talk about that. Here are just some of the things that God has done for His people over the years. When they were enslaved in Egypt, God gave them freedom. I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. God promised He would do that. He did that. God came through. God's people, the second bit is that God's people needed leaders to lead them. And he gave them gifted leaders. I sent Moses to lead you. Also his brother Aaron and sister Miriam. And thirdly, when the security of God's people was threatened time and time and time again God would rescue them. Here he's just using one example in verse 5. Remember what Balad king of Moab counseled and what Balaam son of Beor answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal. God made very clear his relationship with his people. Their failure the, the failure of what happened, of the covenant breaking and everything, he couldn't possibly be blamed on him. So the fault is not with God. That's why he's saying, what have I done to you? But the fault is with the rebellious people. The drama of the courtroom continued. Witnesses have been summoned, the evidence presented, historical evidence of the history of God's relationship with his people. These are all historical facts. These are all the good things that a good God does, did, is doing. And all of these historical facts should be enough to convince the people that God had done what was expected of him and what was just and the people are reminded of their rebellion my people what have i done to you how have i burdened you answer me please answer me they actually had no right To rebel against the Lord. They needed to be reminded of what the Lord had done for them. And this list of the things that God did for them is just very, very minute. Certainly not an exhaustive list. The list of the blessings of God upon his people just goes on and on and on. Well, God has spoken. Now it's up to the people to speak up and present their case. So the defense speaks up in verses six to seven. Israel, of course, could not argue the charges and didn't dispute the evidence presented in the courtroom. It is, as it is. That's as in many court cases it's quite plain and so they really don't have a case and and the the defence is very weak so all they can do is that rather than admit the guilt and say guilty as charged they don't even say that they go on the offensive with self-justifying questions Israel is giving evidence on their own behalf. They haven't got much of a case, but whatever they do, they're going to do it. And and they go on their, you know, they're giving evidence on this, on a superficially pious, but then he turns sarcastic and cynical response. There's hubris there. There they are saying, well, you know, what do you expect? What do you want? What's going to make you happy? And so they deflect their responsibility from their own failure, their own shortcomings, and they deflect it and point it back to God. With what shall I come before the Lord? Verse 6. And bowed down before the exalted one. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? You can just sort of picture a a barrister presenting a case before the jury like this. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With 10,000 rivers of oil. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sins of my soul? Is that what you are? Israel appears to be It sounds like it, and if you didn't think about these verses too much before, this is exactly what's happening. Israel appears to be wanting to appease God by satisfying him with any cravings that God might have. It it appears, dutiful and obedient, if, if you read it. They knew, of course, deep down inside that, they couldn't come before the Lord empty-handed. So they come with burnt offerings. And they come with calves, a year old, which would have been a lot more expensive than, you know, a week old a young calf would have been fine. No, they're going to wait till it grows up a little bit and maybe the Lord will be happy with that. And now what about, you know, Thousands of rams, if that was enough to please the Lord. Thousands, not just one or two rams, thousands of them. If that wasn't enough, they were going to offer oil. Olive oil, which takes quite a lot of work and a process to to produce it. Would the Lord be happy with that? Not just a few litres. But what about? A river of oil. Not just a river but 10,000 rivers of oil. Will that make, let's replace the water with oil. Will that make him happy? If that wasn't enough, would the Lord be willing for me to offer my own child as a sacrifice would that make him happy? My firstborn of course the the neighbouring nations did this stuff and of course the the lowest point in Israel's history happened when Manasseh offered his, his boys as a sacrifice when Israel was deep into idolatry the neighboring nations would offer their kids as sacrifice. And, and, and they're saying, you're saying, you know, in a sarcastic way, they're saying, well, will that make you happy? Obviously, God detested this stuff, He detested child sacrifice. But they're offering it and saying, well, that make you happy. I've had the opportunity in my walk in different situations different circumstances asking sometimes a question of those who are floundering in their spiritual walk they're getting away and so you saying, well you know you want to you want to talk about what's, you know, we missed you and, you know. The immediate response is so you want me to go to church. Is that it? Is that going to make you happy? Oh, so, like, obviously, the people didn't get it then, and people don't get it now. It's not a matter of doing. It's not, yeah, going to church isn't going to fix your problem. Your problem actually is a deeper one. It's, it's a matter of the heart. Doing things isn't going to fix it. Isaiah's words on this matter and quoted by Jesus. There's a reason why Jesus quoted these words from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 29 verse 13, these people come near to me with their mouth and honour me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely, on what? On human rules. Don't do this, don't do that, can't do this, can't do that, don't drink that, don't drink this, don't hang out with those. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that have been taught and they recite the rules and all that stuff but their hearts is, there's no connection, there's no relationship. You see what the problem is? So, okay, if that's what I'm going to solve the problem, what is it that you actually want? Tell me. Following verses, Micah calls his people to reflect God's heart, to connect to the heart of God, what God requires. And here is the central message, I believe, in Micah. What does God require? Verse 8, chapter 6. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Nowadays people talk a lot about self-improvement and they pay quite a lot of money to hear self-improvement gurus. You know who they are. They're advertising the radio and everything else. About self-improvement goals, about, you know, these are motivational speakers who are supposed to help you put your life together and to focus and all of that. But most of this, and I would say all of this, is actually focused on the self. Instead of choosing your own self-improvement goals, perhaps a better approach might be to ask ourselves, what does the Lord require of me? And if you have any self-improvement goals, align your goals to God's, not the other way around. Get God's goals to align with yours. That's not the way it works. What does the Lord desire of me? And last week we spoke from Amos, and the thought uh, that is here, that what does the Lord require of me? Because one day I will have to give account to the Lord. I will have to give account before his throne. Perhaps for some of us, that might be sooner than later. You know, sooner than later. And it doesn't go according to age. And through the prophet Micah, God has revealed what he wants us to do. To do what is right, to do what is merciful and to walk humbly with him. I want to look at these. And all of these things relate to Rather than self-improvement, they relate to soul improvement. Food for your soul. So we are, Let's have a look at some of these responses that God wants from his people. The first two are directed towards our fellow man. We can call them the horizontal stuff. And the third one is the vertical one. Act justly. To act justly. In Micah's context, and he speaks about this, is this expression means to right the wrongs and to protect, to stand up for the helpless. It means to practice honesty and fairness in our human transactions, to not rip each other off. No more oppression, perjury and bribery. It calls for responsibility toward weaker members of society. If you have a car, you're about to sell it, and you know it's got some issues, let's get the bog. Just bog it up. Paint over it. She's fine, mate. Yeah? If you're to sell a car, I know you want to get the most from it, and you probably need to get the most from it, but if somebody comes along, can you please be honest in the condition of the jolly thing? That's what it means to act justly. Don't rip somebody off. Don't wind back the clock. It, it, Sure, it feels like you're probably not financially going to come ahead or whatever, but you are acting justly according to God because he, one day you're going to have to give account to him. To act justly. It insists, you see, no more oppression, perjury, bribery, it Calls for responsibility towards the weaker members. It insists on the rights of others. And There is something within us that longs for justice. But it, it, how often do we seek the justice for others rather than for ourselves? You know, there's only one aspect of justice that is fully within our control and that is our behaviour towards others. As Christians, instead of demanding let right be done to me, let right be done to me, maybe we should start saying, let right be done by me. In the areas of my influence, in the areas of my business, in the areas of my everyday life, let right be done by me. Because great things can happen when we say, in my family, in my community, in my workplace, in my church, in my relationships, I will do, I will endeavour to do what is right. That is what it means to act justly. Secondly, to love mercy. Micah also said that God requires mercy. Mercy. God is a God of mercy. He delights to show mercy. Not only that, but he expects his children to show the character of their father. While justice pertains to, I suppose, the outward side of our lives, mercy is more concerned about the inner side. And please note the subtlety here. We are not told to show mercy. We are told to love mercy. Can you see the difference? You see, many times it does not require much Christian character to show mercy. I can actually give and do acts of kindness begrudgingly. I can give begrudgingly or I can actually choose to give from the heart. Look, if you're going to do it, prove the attitude, come on. Because you're going to do it anyway. You might as well get the benefit of it and and the praise of your Heavenly Father because in Romans 12.8 it says, if it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. (laughs) Show mercy. Cranky. All right, I'll do it. No, No, do it cheerfully and mean it, because to love mercy is to show the nature of our God. And while people might not notice that deep inside you're hating this, people might not notice, and you could actually be a really good actor. God notices. God looks into your heart. Don't squander the reward that you would have received from him because of your attitude. God judges us according to our motives long before he sees our actions. And the word here to love mercy is hesed, which is a, an intimate word of relationship. It describes the divine love that will not let me go, that hangs on, that clings. It's a it's a it's a loyalty to, to God to fellow man the this ideal hess the, there's a covenant term in Aussie terms it would say helping a mate who's having a hard time standing up for him lastly to walk humbly with God this is the relationship that we are to have with the Lord. To walk humbly is the opposite to walking proudly. We are to be walking attentively, yielding to His will in humility. Years ago, more than a hundred years ago, Hudson Taylor was the used powerfully by God to bring the gospel to to thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions in China through the mission that he founded. Powerful man of God. And more than 100 years ago he was scheduled to speak at a large Presbyterian church in Melbourne in Australia. And the moderator of the service introduced the missionary in glowing terms, in eloquent and glowing terms, this He told the large congregation all that Taylor had accomplished in China and then presented him as our illustrious guest. And Taylor stood there quietly for a moment and then opened his message by saying dear friends I am a little servant of an illustrious master. And that is all that we are. That is all that we are. If there is one thing that has to impress us about the life of Billy Graham is his humility in every circumstance. Whether he was with the rich and powerful or whether he was with the, with the lowly, he'd be acting the same, in the same way. And you sort of think, well, this is all pretty hard to do, all this uh, loving justice and mercy and walking humbly before God. The thing is that we don't rely on our own strengths in order to be able to do this. This is—it is It is the same Micah, Micah the prophet who prophesied in chapter 5 verse 2 he said but you Bethlehem Ephratah out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. This is the incarnation, this is God becoming man in Jesus Christ to show us what the heart of God is like, to show us to live the life that we could never live, but He lived it and He showed, He has shown us, oh man, what it is to walk humbly before God to live the life that pleases the Father, to live the life that does the will of the Father. What thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil could never do and the sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice of the old temple system, he did it all with his sacrifice on the cross. And of course at Easter time, it'll be a time when we focus on that again. More than that, more than that, he left us the helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit who has all the power to help us as believers in our growth. He's able to, in Ephesians 3.16, he's able to strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being, deep inside. So what are we going to do to please the Lord? Be more Christ-like. Be more God-like. Reflect your Father in heaven in what you do. And the Spirit will help us as we seek to walk humbly before our Lord. May God bless us. Amen. Let us sing.